So I read the readings for this Sunday and thought after reading them from Proverbs and from James and from the Gospel, three questions uh, presented themselves to me. Uh, The first one is, are all the things that happen to us the result of our own actions? The second question is, Uh, What are our responsibilities with regard to the custody of speech? And the third question is, what does it mean when you hear over and over again this text in one form or one version or another comes up throughout the lectionary every year, and that is, what does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? How do you understand the whole issue of taking up your cross? And what might it mean? So I mentioned last week that we are reading now some readings in Proverbs. And I think we get at least one more week of Proverbs before we switch uh, to something else. In In the Revised Common Lectionary, you have a number of choices usually now in the Old Testament reading. And so we, uh, some are reading through Isaiah, but we read a lot of Isaiah. And I thought Proverbs might be interesting. I mentioned to you that Proverbs is the oldest piece of wisdom literature in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And so I thought this week, I didn't say last week, what wisdom literature is. Here's a definition. So you can check me, it's from Wikipedia. Okay? So with all, so with all the caveats about the use of Wikipedia... Here's what it says. Wisdom literature is the genre of literature common to the ancient Near East. It is characterized by sayings of wisdom intended to teach about divinity and about virtue. The key principle of wisdom literature is that while techniques of traditional storytelling are used, books also presume to offer insight and wisdom about nature and reality. Just so you know, just you can try to remember, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament that we read and in the Apocrypha are these books. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Song of Songs, which is also called the Song of Solomon, Wisdom, and Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, and that's from the Apocryphal literature or the intertestamentary period sometimes it's referred to. So today we hear an extended address by wisdom. Remember, you you noticed, I think, I hope, that wisdom is she. In the Greek and in the Hebrew, it's she. So, oh no, here we go. But uh, that has uh, been the case for, uh, for a long time. And so wisdom is uh, traveling around. Here's the thing about this passage. There's a lot of uh, saying to people that we're seeking out people who don't have wisdom and people who are foolish. It's not clear exactly what wisdom is, what it is that you would do to act in a way that would show that you have some species of practical wisdom about living. It's assumed that you would know that it's self-evident. That's what I think. 
But when I read this text this week, I thought to myself, this is all about what I said last week too. You're going to read Proverbs. You'll have either a series of aphorisms attributed. All this is attributed originally to King Solomon. And then the great question is, uh, after you read all of this, what is, how do you understand wisdom in terms not only of what to do, but do you believe that if you don't do what wisdom says you should do, uh, you're going to suffer the consequences? And does it also mean, therefore, that um, any time you suffer adversity, it is the result of your own poor choices or the exercise of the lack of wisdom? I would suggest probably most of the time it is. But here's something that occurred to me when I read this. And I read at least one commentary this week that supported this view, which is nice <laughs> when you're thinking about, thinking about this kind of thing. I've mentioned this to you before. When I moved here from Marin County to the Silicon Valley, uh, I noticed that there were an enormous number of people. It was at the time when the Silicon Valley was flying high in April, as they say. Lots, lots of success. And people enormously successful very quickly. But there seemed to be absolutely no attribution in the midst of this success to serendipity. That, that people happen to be in the right place at the right time. Right? I told you about my former senior warden at Christ Church Sausalito, who was an example of this in the 1950s. He worked for the Prudential Insurance Company and moved to the Hawaiian Islands in 1954. So when Hawaii became a state in 1959, he sold the insurance to the state of Hawaii. Right? How do you top that? <laughs> so sometimes serendipity we always think of generally in positive terms. But also people like to attribute an enormous amount of talent and wisdom and ability and entrepreneurial drive and plugging into the mainstream of human progress as the result of their success. And some of it, at least, could be that they were just in the right place at the right time. Or maybe the right person in the right place at the right time. Now, the other thing that we don't figure about is that serendipity is often negative. Sometimes we fall victim to negative serendipity. Things, uh, there are sort of a, a whole list of things, that uh, circumstances, and I would suspect that most of us can identify with that over the last couple of years, couldn't we, in the economic circumstances in which we find ourselves. That sometimes things have occurred that uh, really aren't the direct result of what it is that we have done. In the ancient Near East, and this will be true even uh, during the time, certainly during the time of Jesus, during the time of Proverbs, a lot of times people believed that the adversity that they went through was the result of their own sinfulness or the result of, God, uh, the result of God's punishment for their behavior. You know? I mentioned to you last week that what could be involved in this 
issue of ignoring practical wisdom is sort of the release of karmic forces in the cosmos that return to you, you know, reaping what you sow. That's not just some uh, East, uh, Eastern religion view of the world. Jesus speaks about it in the Gospels. So the idea of how that works has some tension between, you know, your responsibility and the serendipity. And so I just sort of wanted to put it out there at the group level for you to think about uh, what is this and how do we make sense of it. Uh, you've heard me say to you before, uh, the same cause has paradoxical effects. This is particularly important if you and I believe in the therapeutic culture we live in that the past is prologue. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? That you use your past as the prologue to why you're here now? So, so we have spent a lot of time in our culture, certainly in the last 25 years, on family of origin issues, for example. Because you were raised a certain way, it means this is how you're going to turn out as an adult. Well, those who've worked in this and who have been involved in it, some say, you know what I've discovered is that um, the same cause has paradoxical effects. So my example that I use all the time, you've heard, is a child raised in a scrupulously neat family will turn out either to be a neatnik or a slob or something in between. You can't figure it always, right? Cause does not always connect to effect in the way that we think it does. And yet, you can't say that it's unimportant, can you? So here's why this is important. In Proverbs and in the wisdom literature, the reason why the rabbis included it in the canon of their sacred literature, which we as Christian people call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, which is a little gentler, maybe a little less chauvinistic, we would say that it's in there because most of this literature doesn't appear to have a particularly religious slant. It's more about how to use reason and common sense or practical wisdom to live, realizing that the power of God is there and present to you and present to us in the world. And so maybe it's a little bit about surrender to uh, the realities of uh, stuff that's bigger than we are, each of us. And the best you and I can do is to exercise the wisdom that we have been given with regard to reason and common sense. What is, uh, Edwin Friedman, one of my hearers, as you know, would say, wisdom is the, is the accumulated learning in response to adversity. how you've learned to cope. He said, I've been a licensed marriage and family before. I've been a licensed marriage and family therapist for nearly 40 years. I have heard stories from people that would make your hair stand on end. So I'm less interested in those stories now than I used to be. I'm more interested in how, to, how come you're still here? How come you're still standing? And what is it that you have learned or not by that process? So you may be standing, but tilting a little. Or, you know, that's most of us, right? We're kind of a little bit, uh, you know, sometimes from poor choices, sometimes from not using 
wisdom or thinking, you know, uh, our best thinking leads us to wherever it is it's led us to. So this reading from Proverbs is just merely to let us think a little bit about the various kinds of serendipity and that the witness of the Hebrew Bible does differ from the witness of the New Testament insofar as we believe in a God who loves, accepts, and forgives us unconditionally. You know, in all of our interest to, to see the similarities and not the differences, which is what we ought to do in the default position, I was reminded sometimes of how different things is when my colleague, Ernest Cockrell, who was the just recently retired rector of St. Andrew's Church in Saratoga, was at a Thanksgiving interfaith service in Saratoga, like we do here in Los Gatos. And uh, they sent the service booklet out to all of the, uh, all of the different uh, faith traditions. And the local rabbi sent a global email to everybody who received it and said, I want you to take out of these prayers, what we would call the prayers of the people, take out those prayers for our enemies. In my tradition, we do not pray for our enemies. We don't do it. So take it out. Or I want it out. Well, <laughs> right? But think about it. It's not the same, is it? This is not to prompt a discussion about whether you should or shouldn't pray for your enemies. It's merely to say it shows you how things that you would assume, practical wisdom, that we from a particular faith tradition believe is something uh, that is uh, necessary and important and provides uh, the opportunity for healing and reconciliation. Others uh, uh, dissent from that view for principled reasons. So, Proverbs are, are important. I remember watching the Mickey Mouse Club when I was in sixth grade, and there was a song, Proverbs, Proverbs, they're so true. Proverbs tell us what to do. Proverbs help us all to be better mouse to <laughs> <laughs> Right? I still remember the tune. And then we segued into an episode of Spin and Marty and we're <laughs> ready for action. The Episcopal Church uh, or the, the Anglican tradition, the, the, the faith, the version of Christianity or Western Christianity that we're part of, prior to the English Reformation and subsequent has been and was deeply influenced by the Benedictine monastic tradition. The Book of Common Prayer is uh, shot through with Benedictine, uh, a Benedictine understanding of the liturgy and of practice in the faith and of a, a number of things. And at the time of Henry VIII, the whole country was literally lousy with Benedictine. Uh, Westminster Abbey was a Benedictine Abbey, and uh, there were a lot of Benedictines around. St. Benedict is the great genius of Western monasticism. He is the one who founded it, and he wrote his famous rule. Now, most of us consider probably that stuff to sound pretty exotic, 
Most of us don't know a lot about uh, monasticism unless we have uh, made it a, a point to either study it or, or in some way have some exposure to the monastic tradition through retreats or visits to monasteries or people that we know who are monks and nuns and, and so on. By the this is another thing. Sisters and nuns aren't the same. A nun is a female monk. So a lot of the time in a hospital or somewhere like that, if you see a sister, it's not a nun, but we call it a nun if she's wearing a habit, you know. It's not correct nomenclature, but it's okay. You'll be fine. (laughs) Now here's why I mention this. In the Benedictine tradition and in the rule of Benedict, there is a concept known as custody. Custody of the eyes. Uh, custody of, 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 of your habits of being and relating and most particularly custody of speech so in the epistle today from James we have a rather uh, hard commentary about the uh, unbridled tongue and the dangers of the unbridled tongue you know most of us uh, well let me put it this way if, if uh, you're like me, gossip is a lot of fun. Or you can innocently step into it and not realize it, right? And all of us know about the pernicious effects of gossip. In the epistle of James today, he says the tongue can curse, condemn, belittle, abuse, intimidate, slander, Exercise, speak of in contemptuously and lie. That's that's not the complete list that's in this epistle. But through our speech and our conversation with one another, these things often uh, come up. And uh, James is speaking about its pernicious effects. Remember, this epistle was a general epistle that appears to have been circulated. Uh, among the churches uh, in the uh, sort of uh, Middle Eastern Eastern area in the ancient Near East, and it was for the purpose of dealing with pastoral issues on the ground in a variety of congregation, Christian congregations of all kinds of hues and ways of doing things. What we've learned, you know, in our research and scholarship is the early Christian churches were pluralistic. They were not all the same even though there were some basic things that were the same, like the Eucharist and like an understanding of the sacraments and like order in the church, you know, and so forth. But but there were various emphases in different places. But I think everywhere, unbridled speech was something that was a common difficulty and produced a great deal of problem in the common life of the church. And so he's speaking about Uh, exercising custody of speech. I've been a priest associate of the Society of St. John the Evangelist for 38 years, which is a religious community of men, and in this country it's based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The monastery is right next door to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And it was founded in 1861 by Richard Mew Benson, who was, was the uh, first person to found a religious community in the Church of England after the Reformation in 1861. 
So Society of St. John the Evangelist, SSJE, all the old low church Episcopalians when they came over here many years ago at the turn of the 20th century referred to them as the Secret Society of Jesus in England. <laughs> in any case, uh, I've been deeply influenced by them and by their rule and so on. And Father Clayton, who's died and gone to God, was the priest David Clayton who um, signed me up before I went to seminary. He used to say to us, you know, if you get yourself in a circle of conversation and there's a lot of gossip and commentary going on, which in church life, I hate to admit to you, is common. <laughs> he said, you know, you need, to, you need to walk away from it. Just walk away. Don't stay there. That's a lot easier to say than it is to do. But I offer that to you without prejudice. If you see this thing veering in a direction that's not going to do anybody any good and perhaps uh, cause some difficulty, uh, walk away from it. You'll be well served to do it. Now, there's another thing about James that's important in today's epistle. And that is, he is speaking about teachers of the tradition. And careful speech also has something to do about speaking with some degree of clarity about things. So part of our spiritual journey and our spiritual maturity is teaching ourselves in our relationships to be clear. So the assumption that you hear me say all the time is, I believe that we are all people of goodwill. The def my default position whenever I meet somebody, I believe we are all people of goodwill and that we mean what we say. That I don't have to engage in some elaborate hermeneutic in order, which is interpretation of what it is that you meant. Okay? Now, all of us have experienced this. I've talked to you about before, even in, in, in family life. You know, someone in the family says, is there coffee? <laughs> well, do you want a cup of coffee? Would you like me to make you a cup of coffee? Are you asking me whether there is any coffee in the house? Now, you would probably say he's being a little bit exaggerated because everybody knows that they want a cup of coffee. Well, maybe, but say so. It's like Fritz Perl down in the Esalen Institute when it all got started in the 60s when he's in a small group. Some guy turns to him and says, uh, do you have a match? And Fritz Perl says, yes, I do. <laughs> Do you want a match? Ask for one. So James is saying, you know, people who teach need to be clear about the tradition and not to uh, falsify information or to speak in ways that are hard to understand and to be clear. I got Pam Thistle sent me a wonderful email from the program that does our financial accounting about financial transparency which you'll be hearing about more in the not-too-distant future, but it's a great explication of why it's important to be as clear as possible. You know? 
I took one journalism class, and I think in, in back then they said if you write an article, it needs to be understood by somebody who has gone to the eighth grade in school, right? So that it needs to be clear enough to be understood that way. So if you're speaking about financial stuff, this isn't a communication for CPAs. It's for people who need to be able to understand what it is you're saying. Right? If you're an investor or something like that, whoever is handling all that should be able to explain it clearly. James is talking about that kind of custody of speech as well. He's also talking about the affirmative side of speaking, where each of us can build one another up, affirm one another, where each of us are in a position to bless one another, where each of us are in a position to... Uh, uh, utter the gracious word to be well-mannered and respectful in our speech and that when we do that it uh, fosters healthy relationship. So I think you can see this epistle is important because it's about a very, very significant issue uh, in human relationship and has deep spiritual and religious significance. So finally let me say something about carrying your cross and do some 3995 biblical study for you. Uh, the first part of this gospel, you know, is the one where Peter uh, tells Jesus, identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And uh, in the course of this, Jesus speaks to them about something that Mark, when he's writing his gospel, is writing about because it was a widely held view by the time of the writing of the gospel that Jesus' Messiahship had a different tint than people thought the Messiah that was coming was going to have. And that part of the Messiahship of Jesus involved suffering. And so Jesus is a Messiah who is triumphant, but also the suffering Messiah. And for Peter, when he heard this, it was not a palatable idea because everybody who was waiting for the Messiah believed that the Messiah was going to come and be a triumphant individual who would restore the halcyon days of Israel, who would restore the best days when they were in their best shape as a people, when they were the most highly regarded, when they were the most prosperous economically, when they were people that were looked to because of their strong ethical base. And when you say, in addition to that, he's going to suffer, it was it just simply not so. So when Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan, the word Satan is not, meaning, it's not identifying Peter with the devil, but the word Satan in the ancient languages means the advocate. The person who is going to now suggest to Jesus that his acceptance of his role Remember last week I talked to you about Jesus going through a development in his own ministry about what he thought, how he understood his messiahship and his mission? He didn't want to hear that kind of conversation. So he told him to get behind him and just not speak of this. But my question to you today was, what does it mean to take up your cross? So here's the biblical stuff. In Greek, the word that Jesus uses for cross is staros. And staros is the brand or the mark that someone in the ancient Near East would use to put on their cattle. 
to mark them as theirs. Okay? So, taking up your cross means to take up some identification or to submit to the brand and to understand that you're somehow, as it says in our baptismal liturgy, marked as Christ's own forever. I read a commentator this week who said, the surrender of self-assertion before God and the surrender of the autonomous freedom which directs itself against God. That's a pretty big mouthful in 2009 in this culture, isn't it? Where the triumph of the autonomous self is the highest value, the most valued thing. But in this particular case, it means that you need to be willing to uh, operate uh, knowing that uh, the, the cosmos is bigger than you. There are things going on here that are bigger than you and how you think about them. And that perhaps as you operate with that kind of humility, you're going to get some clarity of insight in terms of what it is to do. This passage has been interpreted, or preachers have always said, that means you need to take up a cross of suffering and adversity and so on, and you do, because you already do, in terms of the, other, the things that you go through in your life. But there is a more affirmative aspect of saying that uh, you are throwing your hat in and marked by one who loves, forgives, and accepts you unconditionally and who believes that you have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos and that that's an important thing. So that as we begin to bear our cross, both in terms of our willingness to commend to others our greatest place of safety and assurance. And I've told you before, that doesn't mean to speak to people in specifically Jesus-specific or, or overtly religious language, but to commend to one another the practical wisdom you have that allows people to be the best human beings they can be. You know? That's what the gospel really is all about. How do you live consistent with the anthropology that we accept that each of us are made in the image and likeness of God. And that's how we're marked. And this passage has something to say about that. So, this week, think about um, serendipity. And if you've, been the victor, if you've been the recipient of positive serendipity, thank God for it, but be be truthful with yourself about it and if you're uh, the victim of negative serendipity don't uh, beat yourself up and you know when God's judgment and God's mercy collide God's mercy always trumps God's judgment the medieval theologian said God's mercy is his opus um, proprium, his proper work, and his judgment is, is his opus alienum, his strange work. So that means that you and I focus on God's proper work, God's mercy. And finally, uh, think a little bit about custody of speech and how important it is uh, as you live. Amen. Yeah. Coffee.